This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. again everyone and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 133. Today on our show, CBG Then and Now with Brian Cobb. Yes, there are legends for sure. And that late at night, if you're in Terminal 1, uh, working in the offices, the, the airport board's offices were just above Terminal 1. That, yeah, perhaps you would hear some, some odd movements when no one else was in the offices at that time. Brian is the Chief Innovation Officer for the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport. He was kind of to join us to talk about the airport's history, including how it wound up being in Kentucky, the changes it has seen over the years, and what the future holds, especially in the wake of the global pandemic. If you're liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for the special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. Now let's talk about CVG. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-E-T-I-Cincinnati. She came down from Cincinnati. Just maybe think of me once in a while. I'm at CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. So where are you from originally? Sure, I am a, uh, a local guy. Born and raised in uh, Green Hills, just up the street from uh, CPG. Oh, okay. And inside the 275 Beltway. There you go. So you saw the uh, you saw the planes coming overhead from an early age. Oh, absolutely. And uh, of course, I think that had something to do with my future career. Okay. Did you, so? You early on, you were interested in, in aviation and airports and such. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, I was that kid that was just infatuated with making uh, paper airplanes, and then that progressed to making model uh, rockets, SD's model rockets. So, uh, painting them and watching them. So, yeah, just infatuated with uh, all things aeronautics. And so, uh, what, did you go to college for aviation? Did you be? Are you a pilot? Uh, how did? What, what was your kind of aviation background from there? I did, uh, like any high schooler, um, you know, struggled with what my future was uh, towards the end, and initially looked at real estate and then uh, decided that I would go into medicine. Actually, I was a uh, physical oh. therapy trainer for um, for my high school. Oh, cool. And then uh, really enjoyed the medical world. But um, as I was coming close to graduation, then there was just a, just a slew back then of mm-hmm. a uh, tremendous amount of malpractice suits. And frankly, that, that kind of spooked me a bit of, Ooh. you know, is it really worth Going through all of those years of education only to be uh, sued into oblivion. So um, opted out of that and actually at the 11th hour received a course catalog from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. A good neighbor friend of mine was just behind me in school. He also loved aeronautics and, and all things aviation. I found myself trying to convince him for the next probably good two weeks on, hey, you've got to check out this Ember Riddle. Here's the catalog. Just look through it, thumbing it through every page. You know, what was the uh, career trajectory? Of course, at the time, there was uh, quite a bit of discussion about uh, a huge need for pilots 
uh, either the military side of the house or as the military was growing, that usually shrunk the availability for uh, for commercial pilots. So, yeah, after about two weeks, I realized I was trying to convince myself more than I was trying to convince my friend and uh, ended up having a conversation with my parents and my parents supported me completely as, as any good parent would do. Cool. And I forgot that. Where did you go to high school? Sure. Uh, I was a Roger Bracken grad. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. 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 There you go. And uh, found myself, uh, I was one of those generations where um, kind of straddled both sides. So initially the first two years was an all male and uh, second um, half was the combination of Roger Bacon student traditional and uh, OLA. And college was where? And college was Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in uh, Daytona Beach, Florida. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we so uh, most people think immediately it's Emory University out of Atlanta. Yeah. Um, so there's usually quite a bit of uh, explanation on no, 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 Embry-Riddle. Uh, aeronautical-focused university um, ironically started here in CVG, or actually down at Lunkin, I oh. should say Cincinnati, yeah. down at Lunkin Airfield. Uh, so it was Mr. Embry and Mr. Riddle that were in back in the day, uh, postal air delivery that um, decided to develop an aeronautical school really for military purposes. Uh-huh. So and then how do you wind up at CVG? Sure. As I graduated, I uh, came out. Unfortunately, uh, as I was coming out with my commercial license and flight instructor ratings, um, really top-notch everything. It was a matter of gaining my hours to become a certified commercial pilot uh, under a carrier, an airline. And really, the, the choices were slim. Unfortunately, uh, Gulf War One had already uh, started. So there was no longer that uh, shortfall of pilots that was predicted. Uh, the economy started to shrink quite a bit. Um, I did not feel it was appropriate anymore as a, as a young man to really kind of live off my mom and dad. So um, I did come back home as opposed to, to living in Florida and trying to gain my hours, beat the pavement, and ended up finding you know, a job opportunity with a uh, relatively fledgling airline back then, um, Calm Air Airlines. Uh, so, yeah, the hometown airport, hometown airline. There we go. Uh, that was just on the cusp of really growing hugely in the regional space. Yeah, it was uh, Calm Air, of course, a, a big part of uh CBG's later growth, and it was certainly when I was there, it was a huge deal. So, and then you eventually worked your way into working for the actual airport. I did. So, so after a very successful career with with Comair and watching, um, frankly, the tremendous growth there, uh, and then subsequently, um, perhaps some missteps. Uh, of course, the recession hit. Also, we had, you know, the oil crisis of the mid-2000s, 9-11, so just a tremendous amount of turmoil and tumult in the industry um, really pushed some, some dramatic changes. I saw that um, probably the end was near for Comair, so I took the opportunity to leave on a high note and uh, found myself, again, based at my hometown airport, CVG. So in all my years, 20 years almost of career at, uh, at an airline. I never really had to move other than uh, a brief stint in Appleton, Wisconsin. So oh, wow. relatively unheard of in the industry, but started as the vice president of customer experience, the first position, first customer experience dedicated individual for CBG. 
And so, uh, you know my pal Dave Kellerman then? Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, love Dave. Um, great guy. Yeah. So we've done uh, like a blog post on this before, but maybe podcast listeners don't don't know the story. And it's always it's always of interest. Is uh, why is our airport in Kentucky? I believe we're the only metropolitan area whose major airport is outside of is in another another state. Sort of an exception would be Newark, although the two main airports are in New York City. They do have a third major airport out of state, but we're the only major metropolitan area that has a major airport sitting in another state that I know of. Well, that's because, PF, we're just too big for one state. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Good answer. But yeah, that's uh, – and, and of course, you having worked at CBG as well, you, you've seen the look on people's faces when they find out yes. <laughs> that they're actually in Kentucky and they're not in Cincinnati, Ohio. They would so. walk up to the, uh, yeah, to the coffee shop uh, we were working at and they'd say, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you were and immediately the, uh, the the look of uh, stress crosses their face. Yes, and like, no, 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 you're only 15 minutes <laughs> you're, away. You're in the right you're, place. You're, you're on the wrong flight. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we ended up here for uh, for our international airport, um, largely back in uh, in the 30s and, and early 40s, and that was simply because uh, Lunkin was the original targeted airport. Um, Lunkin went through a, a dramatic. Uh, flood stage actually in the late 30s and um, there are pictures out there uh, tremendous amount of archival information from Lincoln Airfield back in the day unfortunately the airfield flooded and almost covered the control tower the control tower that's there uh, actually in existence today so uh, it was recognized that you know to grow the airport um, there in that space was probably not tenable uh, between the floods and the fog that many of us see throughout the throughout the seasonal changes. So then it was decided to really kind of go on the hunt for where would a growing airport uh, be placed. Uh, if you go back in time, uh, there was some quite a bit of discussion actually about blue ash. Uh, so blue ash. There's probably a younger generation that doesn't even realize that there was an airport at Blue Ash, which is now a large, sprawling park, um, beautiful concert venue. But uh, yeah, the Blue Ash Airport was originally targeted as the international space. Unfortunately, because of, uh, if you look back in the papers, I guess they, even then there were some city council uh, challenges and city council really couldn't agree and uh, just really could not settle on Blue Ash as the as the location. At the time, over on this side of the, uh, the state, northern Kentucky, there was the uh, air base that was for military purposes. And really, it had served its useful purpose, um, decided that it was no longer necessary for an air base. Uh, so really, the property uh, and the, the infrastructure was put up by the Fed. And then the decision was made, okay, that could be the property and how it all turned out and why it's located in Boone County, but managed by the Kenton County Airport Board, which becomes even more crazier or or difficult to follow, is that uh, Boone County was largely just farmland. Um, Kenton County was the more developed. Uh, Kenton County, the largest city there was Covington, hence CVG. Uh, so that became the moniker, uh, the shortened version of CVG Airport, because Covington was the largest populous city demographically next to the what, what is now the airfield. 
So um, Kenton County put up the money for Boone County to take uh, responsibility for the airfield. And that's how we really became CVG International over the course of time. It's uh, You talk about the confusion when we used to have buses that ran between Concourse C, which isn't even there anymore, and B Concourse. Uh, there was one f- driver that used to say, you welcome to the Cincinnati Northern Kentucky International Airport located in Boone County, administered by the Kenton County Airport Board. <laughs> so I remember his, his his hearing his spiel a lot. I hear at least once a day having to go back and forth between the, the two concourses. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that was, uh, again, in, in some of some very burgeoning times at CBG. I think we've we've definitely seen uh, no less than four different major cycles in aviation being deregulation that really led to the Delta hubbing uh, back in the early 80s. Of course, the Delta and, and Comair relationship that ultimately ended up in Comair being a Delta subsidiary uh, that really commanded a tremendous business presence um, for this airport. So largely the business person's airport. And then when the uh, the economic crisis happened in the early 2000s, then we saw the next dramatic shift, which was you're no longer the business person's airport. We really had to compete because, again, uh, as you mentioned, unlike anywhere else in the U.S., there are five competing airports literally right on top of us, all within an hour, hour and a half drive. So consumers definitely in this marketplace have a choice. Uh, we had to establish a brand the first time really in the airport's history. Um, and very unusual for other airports across the country to actually be identifiable as a brand. Getting back to Blue Ash for a second, I did a separate blog post about the uh, 1948 Cincinnati Master Plan a couple months ago, and it was fascinating. And uh, first of all, not only were they mad for helicopters back then, they thought there were going to be heliports everywhere, (laughs) like a huge one downtown, and they would fly the mail out to, uh, I guess, either CBG or Blue Ash, as it was still the plan at the point. But anyway... And I don't know if you know much about this, because I'd never really heard about this, but uh, Blue Ash was going to be a Category 5 airport. And then Lunkin and what would become CVG were going to be Class 4 airports, whatever that meant. And then from there, it went down to what the uh, – they were going to be all the little airports, one out in Green, one uh, – two in Anderson, one outside a new town, one in the township proper. Do you, Did that mean anything to you, Class 5 and Class 4 airport? Is that even used these days? Yeah, so um, they, they are uh, relatively smaller airports. We're actually a Class X. Um, it looks like a Roman numeral. However, uh, it, it's absolutely referred to as a Class X. Okay. Um, that's based on the amount of volume and activity that you have in your airfield. And then also that triggers the requirements for um, fire department response in the event that there's an accident. Ah. Yeah, I think I remember something about that. They had to build a new fire station because when they added that third runway – the third north-south runway, they had to, the response time, yeah, they have to be a certain uh, distance away from any runway. Is that correct? Okay, cool. And absolutely uh, two different firehouses. We have our own police department. The fire response is uh, all predicated based on, again, to your point, runways, um, distance, and time. They have to respond to uh, the middle of the airport within um, X number of minutes uh, in order to meet that classification. Going back to the 1950s, it's 1947 or 48 when commercial flights shift to uh, CVG from Lunkin, correct? Correct, 47. Okay. And so uh, at this time, it looks like Blue Ash can still snatch victory from the jaws of defeat, but uh, residents aren't having it, and it very quickly becomes apparent that the international airport is going to be located in Boone County. And then what happens from there? I know in the 60, in 1960, the jet age arrives, but is... 
I guess in terms of other airports at this time, where does Cincinnati fit? Is it just your garden variety, big city airport? Um, not quite as big naturally as, as the San Francisco's or the, uh, the New York's, et cetera. But it, it certainly upheld its own. Back prior to deregulation, um, which occurred in the late 70s, really it was a, it was a point-to-point environment. So what that meant is it was not uncommon for, we'll take TWA. Um, say TWA would fly out of Cincinnati to St. Louis and then on to Dallas and perhaps to San Francisco. So all of that was connector, connected, however, considered very much a point to point. Uh, so they had the opportunity as TWA um, to really travel that entire distance, it's four different uh, cities, and pick up individuals along the way. You could choose to fly just one leg or all legs, et cetera. So um, very unique back then. That was well before uh, the, the hub and spoke system that we know today. Hub being something like Atlanta and seeing the number of Atlanta flights to and from Cincinnati via Delta. And some airlines have kind of gone back to the, uh, the route system, kind of the giant, because people describe Southwest as a giant flying bus because it's not unusual on Southwest for you to stop in three or four different cities before you get to your destination. So that's kind of come back in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Southwest was very unique. Um, while they were considered the uh, largely in the U.S. as the first low-cost carrier, or LCC, um, they had a very unique model, and that was really to hold their own against uh, the, the legacy carriers, uh, predominantly American Airlines back in the day. And uh, they targeted those smaller markets where they just didn't have to go against the big guy or big gals. So they, they opted uh-huh. to fly to those kind of small, medium-sized markets. Then it became a point of, again, like a brand or competition. Eventually, if you want to grow your business, you're going to have to go against the big guy. Um, so they found themselves really having to plant their flag. Now, ironically, how Southwest ended up in that situation was through the economic crisis, again, of, of the late 2008, uh, nine scenario, where they ended up buying AirTran. AirTran was uh, oh, based yeah. out of Atlanta. Yeah. So immediately overnight, Southwest planted their flag right in the middle of Delta's hub. Um, and became and went head to head. Now, subsequently, what's happened too is because of that unique Southwest uh, legality rule, which I'm drawing a blank right now, and what the, the Texas uh, law was that they couldn't fly interstate. What ended up happening is Southwest really found themselves head to head, and then subsequently kind of pulled out of those mid-sized markets. So really, we kind of see them in inside industry as no longer a low-cost carrier. They're more like the legacy model, like Delta, American, United. Hmm. The new low-cost carriers are really referred to as ultra-low-cost carriers. So to your point, Allegiant and Frontier, absolutely those very point-to-point, very specific, market-driven, where is my consumer-based, low-cost of flying, a la carte style, so only pay for what you want, which absolutely pulls people from far and wide to markets like CVG. And uh, so getting back to the, the the timeline, the 1960 or so, the airport's first remodel really takes place when the when Terminal 1 is, is renovated. And it also, at that point, uh, a, a concourse is added, correct? Correct. Uh, so concourse, uh, or Terminal 1, excuse me, absolutely. Um, some of the original structure 
was still there when we ended up um, finally tearing it down. Yep. Uh, yep. While it may have been painful, it was it was kind of a necessary means to an end to uh, close out that era. It was just no longer viable to maintain that facility as as it was. It was a mix mash of really different years, to your point, of 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, so in the 60s, that first finger uh, or concourse was added to the terminal, and then on top of that, actually, there was a there was a viewing deck. You might recall, yeah. And people could absolutely go up onto the deck and watch their friends and families and loved ones uh, depart from the turboprop aircraft or jet aircraft, uh, feel the jet blast. Um, so, yeah, that was, those were certainly the days. There was actually a, uh, a 10 cent um, turnstile that you would have to, to drop a dime in eventually to, to get in there, crawl up the steps and then walk out onto the rooftop to watch. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I uh, worked there. Uh, Host had a gift shop there. And then later, Hudson, I think, we actually had a gift shop there. Correct. We took over uh, Host's gift shop, as a matter of fact. And, uh, yeah, it was right down there. And I w- was there in the late 90s. It was um, U.S. Air was down there. And Midwest Airlines out of Milwaukee was down there. And Correct. that was it. And there was a McDonald's right uh, out of our, outside of our store, which was uh, kind of odd. But, yeah, it was uh, an, an interesting I – and mean, there was a barber shop actually a couple doors down from us. And that guy was there for years. Right. Uh, and and he, the shoe shine. The and, shoe shine, uh, Northwest yeah. Northwest Airlines was there. Northwest, that's right. That Northwest was there too. Yeah, and I remember um, walking down the con- – we didn't have a notion to be on the concourse actually until um, host uh, – Hudson took over because then we had a uh, store in the ticketing area and then we had a kiosk halfway down the concourse. And so it wasn't until I worked for them I had a notion to be on the concourse. And I remember poking around one day there because I was bored, giving someone a break. I, woke, I found an old terminal from U.S. Air from 1984. <laughs> and it was just one of the green screen mod. They just left it there. They, they, when they right. went up the terminal, too, they just, well, they'll just leave this here. It was such an interesting. Little, it was almost like an airport museum <laughs> at that point. Totally. And, and uh, even before we, we uh, had to bring down Terminal 1, you could go down in the basement where we were storing our documents. And it was actually the dirt floor, the original dirt floor. Wow. So oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Definitely a throwback. Well, and then to, uh, to your point, the most important item that was sold in Terminal 1, and you sold a lot of it, was what? Well, we sold a lot of pillows. I know that. Popcorn. popcorn. Oh, we didn't sell popcorn. But that wasn't that was, us. Was yeah, that was um, the old. That? They were next door to us. Okay. They yeah. were our, they were our neighbors. Yeah, they were very famous. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and so people, the old country store. And yeah, the, uh, the women wore the bonnets and the and the aprons. Yeah, the most popular popcorn. Apparently, little did I know, uh, from every flight attendant and pilot that, yeah. uh, that flew through the seventies and eighties was here in Cincinnati. Apparently, you know what? I think by the time I got there and was working for Host in ninety seven, they had already left Terminal One. Because um, we had, there was an empty space next to us, and one day uh, I think we were poking around looking either to expand or they were gonna host wanted to maybe open another uh, concept because of because the U.S. Air and Northwest were still there, and so they opened up and the old country store was still inside there with all the wooden shelving and stuff like that. So I do remember that now, yeah. but yeah, they they had already left. Another interesting thing about Terminal One is that Terminal One was said to have been haunted. So yes, <laughs> and a bit of a tragic um, story behind that too. Yeah, so unfortunately, um, we lost two of our own, two firefighters. Uh, there was a fire that started in Terminal 1, 
Um, unfortunately, it was uh, really kind of grew out of control. Um, two firefighters were, were uh, battling heavily and uh, unfortunately lost their lives and tragically. Still to this day, we, we have uh, an I-beam from a portion of the building um, that is scarred and marred uh, that is outside of uh, one of our firehouses. Um, and we pay homage, actually, every year to um, to the loss of our compatriots. So, uh, absolutely. And, and yes, there are legends, for sure. And that uh, late at night, uh, if you were in Terminal 1, uh, working in the offices, the, the airport board's offices were just above Terminal 1. Um, but, yeah, perhaps you would hear some, some odd movements when no one else was in the offices at that time. Well, I was giving a break in the Terminal 2. I think it was Hudson at this point. It might have been, still been host. I don't remember who I was giving because no, it must have been host because uh, we didn't have the Terminal 2 space our competitor did. So it must have been my back working for host. And someone came up and said, there's some kind of an emergency down in Terminal 1. I'm like, what are you talking about? All the flights are gone. She goes, yeah, they, they rushed somebody out in a gurney to uh, – like they're rushing toward an ambulance. It was two paramedics and somebody on a gurney. And I'm like – what are you talking about? And then later, someone who'd overheard came in and said, "Oh, it's the it's haunted down there. Didn't you know that?" And I'm like, "No." So yeah, that's the story I heard, and it happened. And it, luckily, it just happened right when I was there that that incident. So yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's a historical moment everywhere you turn. Really, <laughs> no re- lack of. Uh- no lack of opportunities. It, it was a, a fascinating, fascinating complex. So, um, and speaking of Terminal Two, well, the the Jet Age, of course, I guess, is probably the, one of the reasons Terminal One expands and gets the concourse. And then uh, we have another expanction that comes along in 1972. And uh, you you alluded to that earlier, For sure. Yeah, uh, and that was right. So, um, to your point, you know, that's when uh, concourses came to their own. And the concourse concept was essentially you have your terminal check-in building. Uh, the concourse is really nothing more than a finger. And it was really just intended for um, really kind of a modern age uh, bus station or train station where when your train or bus was ready to depart, you walked out a specific door. And at that point, the loading bridges were added. So now you have an opportunity no longer to board outside in the inclement conditions. Um, you boarded right on right on the aircraft. So really that modern jet age amplifying the experience. But it was really never intended that there would be a large audience down in those concourses or fingers. So yeah, those those spaces are relatively cramped. Uh, never intending to to be used as what we ended up using them, if you recall back in the late nineties and early two thousands, especially post nine eleven. Yeah, it was interesting because when I was working there then in the 90s, it was kind of an interesting mix. You at Terminal 1 was still pretty much kind of a late 50s, early 60s concourse. And then Terminal 2, as it was known by then, was very much a mid-70s, right down to the architecture, even though they tried to retrofit a little bit. It still had that 70s feel to it. And like you said, the the actual concourse, uh, there were no stores on or anything. You just went down there to get on the plane. And then you had terminal, the new Terminal 3 that Delta built in the 90s uh, that was more the, the modern airport. So again, like it was like an airport museum visiting CBG. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we can't forget the uh, Reinhold Reese um, mosaics. Oh, yeah. That actually were uh, born out of Cincinnati Union Terminal, now the museum center. Of course, the, if you go back in history and, and sharing the heritage of the city itself, Union Terminal never really saw its heyday. 
Um, it was built obsolete, as they say. Storyline. I'm sorry? It was built obsolete, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was just such a uh, such a throwback to, you know, an Art Deco period. Just gorgeous. And we, of course, we appreciate that art today. But, um, yeah, back in the 70s, as the airport was actually growing, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the aircraft age and the jet age really created a demise for train travel. So here we found ourselves in a scenario where as we were growing and had space, the facilities down at Union Terminal were falling into disrepair or there was interest in modernizing it just for uh, cargo train traffic. So essentially, we ended up taking, if I recall correctly now, um, at least 14, 16 mosaics interspersed throughout Terminal 2. And then ultimately, uh, as we added Terminal 3, we placed um, some additional large-scale units in, in Terminal 3 as well. So, uh, yeah, very, very sense, uh, significant sense of pride to be able to take those mosaics on behalf of Union Terminal really on behalf of the city of Cincinnati, who had um, complete ownership and, and first right of refusal when it came time to uh, to give them back. Of course, we ended up doing that as we decided to scale back on facilities. It was a complete opposite, naturally, for, um, for the ease of getting those units over to the airport back in the 70s as compared to trying to take them back home to downtown Cincinnati. Now that on the, uh, what is that, the west-facing side of Duke Energy yes. um, Convention Center. So, yeah, fascinating uh, fascinating to watch all of that come about full circle to um, to take delivery and then end up sending some of them back home. So not, are there still ones in Terminal 3? I can't remember now. I, yes, there are. I thought um, so. Okay, those are still there. Okay, on baggage claim and okay. on the ticketing level. Oh, there you go. Okay. Yeah, because they tore down the concourse, like you said, at Union Terminal to make room for freight trains. And the only mosaic not to survive was the map of the U.S. that had all the uh, different time zones on it. Unfortunately, that one right, could right. not be rescued. Yeah. Yeah. So by far the uh, the craziest. So I, I just got the CVG in 2010. Probably one of the first phone calls I took PF was from a gentleman that was very upset, uh, passed <laughs> through from the from the front desk saying, this gentleman is very upset how we're treating the murals, um, wants to talk to someone to get it rectified. So I talked to this gentleman for the better part of 20 minutes, and he's insistent that we've destroyed one of the one of the murals. And um, I just asked, and continued to ask for a description, totally out of sorts on where he was talking. And he walked me through and then agreed to meet with me because we still couldn't come to terms. He was insistent that it was the one with the aircraft, and there was. Yeah. Uh, there was one of an Aronka. And ironically, here's again another unique connection. So the Aronka aircraft was built here in Cincinnati, uh, up in Hamilton. And we now have a very similar Aronka that's actually hung in our atrium just outside of ticketing. So very, uh, very unique to have, you know, locally built back in the 30s. Oh, I didn't know that. Being on display, which was also captured in one of the murals. So this gentleman comes out. He immediately takes me to the location that he believes it's at. And sure enough, it's there. And he said, look, you destroyed it by putting this escalator in front of it. And I look closer here. It's actually a replica from our sign shop. Our sign shop had digitally huh. taken a picture. Oh. Not digitally back then. Actually, taken a picture. 
And they had done such a high level quality job that it looked exactly like the mosaic. That's funny. Of course, when we installed the escalator, it was right in front of this uh, faux faux picture. Yeah. Essentially. So uh, gladly, I took them around. It was down in the old Terminal 2 baggage claim. We both got a good laugh, and he won on his way. There you go. Well, it's nice he was such a fan and uh, a lover of history that he he took the time to to care about that. So in the 70s, it's a modern airport. When does Delta kind of come in and start to uh, think, hey, this would be a great place for a hub? Sure. Uh, TWA and American were really the, the big operators in the 70s. And then, of okay. course, um, deregulation around 78. Uh, deregulation essentially gave an opportunity for fledgling airlines um, to level the playing field against really the, the well-known brand airlines. So there was just a large glut uh, or a large push to enter into the aviation space, largely a as we would say, kind of a free market economy. The Fed was no longer establishing what ticket prices should be. It was exactly what the airline would establish. Um, And that's when Delta saw an opportunity because Delta was largely not necessarily a big player up in uh, really the Northeast or the upper Midwest, our location. So instead of Chicago or Pittsburgh or Cleveland, which should all sound familiar as other hubs for other airlines way back in the day, Delta opted to pick up Cincinnati. And then as that hub and spoke environment continued to formulate even more, at the same time, big airlines were starting to create these alliances or code share partners. So as Delta was growing, so was a local very small point-to-point, small city-to-city airline called Conair that was originally out of Dayton and would fly Dayton, Cleveland, Toledo, and back. Um, They saw the opportunity to pick up the business person in those smaller markets, bring them back to a hub, and then connect up with the Delta mainline aircraft. So immediately that model proved out quite successful. So very small market cities, small turboprop aircraft, that way big aircraft wasn't going to the small city and really kind of losing some efficiency just by flying just a handful of people. Um, so that's where that regional model and the mainline model all came to a confluence. It really just took off through the late 80s, early 90s. And then by the early 90s, the race was on between the mainline legacy carriers, Delta, American, United. Um, U.S. Airways back in the day where they all recognized they had to go to those small cities with a partner, pick them up, bring them to the large hub cities, put them on a large mainline aircraft and get them anywhere in the world as quickly as possible. And when Delta expands, Delta expands three times here. They add a a taller uh, loading area at the end of what was then well, was, it was Terminal 3, but it wasn't called it back. They all had different names back then. I didn't discover this until later. But they and the what was the Terminal 3 that they tore down and rebuilt, they, they put a new thing on. And then in 87, they stuck a new concourse out, which is still there. And now today is known as Concourse A. And uh, if, if you go, for those familiar with the airport, if you go up the escalator to the co- uh, Concourse A and make the right turn to go down the main concourse, if you make the left at the coffee shop, that's that area that they added in 1980, I believe. Is that 
Correct. And yes. that, uh, the original Terminal 3 was connected to exactly where you locate. If you take a left at Starbucks, yes. you walk down that hallway. Yep. And in fact, the original escalators are there, um, still behind or around. Uh, that would be about gate A8, A10 yep. yeah. is the original international arrivals. So there's still a customs facilities down there. No longer used, of course. That's yeah. since been turned over to airline operations. But yeah, quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of change. So Terminal Three, and then what um, the airport back used to do back in the day was the fingers were called concourses. The front of the house was a terminal. So Terminal yeah. One, Concourse A, yep. Terminal Two, Concourse B, um, and then we ended up with Terminal Three, Concourses C and D. Yep. Yeah, very along the way as far as naming conventions and, and continuity. Yeah, because I didn't realize that I was working for uh, I think it was Hudson. I saw some old signage down in Terminal Two, and it was this. It was Terminal B, and I'm like, what? What are you talking about, Terminal <laughs> B? There's no, this is Terminal Two. There's a concourse B, and then I realized it was spray painted on the in the uh, stairwell, actually. Because I had to go out there to get our truck because I'd gotten uh, locked out or something. And I had to go out a different way. And that's when I saw that. I'm like, wait a minute. That's weird. So that started a whole rabbit hole for me after, to investigate. But um, so when does – what we came to know as Terminal 3 in the 90s and 2000s uh, before it became just the terminal, uh, that was, I think, just built right when I moved here in 94. So when does that come about, the plans for that? I guess probably in the late – late 80s, early 90s, logically, uh, they decided they needed to be even uh, having a bigger facility. Right, spot on. And that's absolutely when, uh, you know, U.S. Airways was growing Pittsburgh and um, Philadelphia and Cleveland. Uh, that was largely continental back in the day. So, yeah, all of these major hubs are just cropping up out of the middle America, mid-sized markets. Um, Cincinnati was no different on really on the Delta side. So Delta saw the, the playing field as an opportunity to grow Cincinnati as a hub, but uniquely, uh, and this is where the hub and spoke concept really kind of goes into a different market. So there's hub and spoke, and then there's origin and destination. So an O&D market is where the O&D market can support itself. You've got enough, enough travelers to fly in and out that you can handle the volume of activity. Whereas a hub is not necessarily that case. You might actually fly more transferring passengers in than what you would have from a local marketplace. And that's what Delta saw in Cincinnati, is that it was a mid-sized market, middle America, well-structured, well-founded, plenty of growth. So we have a lot of property. We sit on about 7,500 acres. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of growth opportunity from uh, runway infrastructure, taxiway, ramps, et cetera. And as you mentioned, obviously the terminals and concourses. So as they were growing their operation, uh, late 80s, they decided, okay, it's time to make a run at creating a hub in Cincinnati. It would be the second largest hub next to Atlanta, their primary. And then the third would be Salt Lake City. So now you have really this really unusual triangle that Delta would create across the country and just hammer the competition. Hammer away by Atlanta didn't really have a tremendous amount of weather issues. Um, Salt Lake, yes, they dealt with snow, but they handled it relatively well. Cincinnati had moderate winters by comparison to Chicago and New York and Philadelphia. 
So they saw an opportunity to compete really heavily on the operational side. And really the what took off um, PF is as that growth was happening, our decision to grow in the early 80s and construction started to happen in the early 90s. As soon as it was open in 94 with uh, Concourse A, Concourse B, and then Concourse C, which was the Comair terminal, the first of its kind in the world for just a regional carrier, where Delta saw a tremendous win was connection times. So when you book a flight, if you're booking a connection flight, it's going to find, or the search engine would find, the shortest amount of connection time available. And that's where Cincinnati, frankly, just destroyed the competition. So our connection times were anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes versus the 45 minutes to an hour in Chicago. Um, same thing in New York. And of course, anyone that even traveled back in the 90s realized there's no way I'm going to make my gate <laughs> in Chicago with a 45-minute yeah. connection time. So people would just steer away from those major hubs, and they they flocked to Delta with, um, by all comparison, really uh, professional, high professional services, high touch, the traditional kind of southern model, if you will. And then that low connection time just really brought a tremendous amount of wind to, to the city. So we ended up, uh, all that said, we ended up with about 80% of our traffic or 80% of our passengers being connecting passengers. They never saw the front front of the house. They yep. never saw the terminals. They got off one aircraft, got right back on another. And Concourse C was built at the same time then? Is that correct? Right. Concourse C opened in uh, 1994 as well. Okay. Of course, um, those that remember back in the day, Conair had just... Uh, for the longest time, it operated out on just an asphalt ramp. So lines of turboprop aircraft, buses to and from the aircraft, uh, really kind of old school, yeah. Um, but highly, highly successful. Uh, just a tremendous amount of, of revenue generated off of that model. But then it became such that the consumer was starting to reasonably expect more, but it was no longer acceptable to get off a bus, slop through snow, get on aircraft. It was just really viewed as, as a lesser amount of service than the mainline aircraft, the Delta aircraft. So uh, the next iteration for Comair was to go to the jet age. Uh, so just about 92, um, they started flying jets. If, uh, if people recall, there's a, the value jet aircraft that, um, that had an accident in Florida, there was all sorts of considerations around that, and then a slew of turboprop aircraft accidents. And unfortunately, that just created this moniker or perception that only jet aircraft were safe, turboprop aircraft were no longer safe. So airlines found themselves, regional airlines, found themselves in a need to get to the jet age very quickly and then also start building facilities that were designed for those aircraft to, again, quickly turn them as fast as possible and not be encumbered with uh, loading bridges, et cetera. So heighten the experience, lower the turn time, operational efficiency. And again, that's where that's where Cincinnati dominated. And the one nuance to that is, and where customers still to this day say, well, how come you still had to take a bus from Concourse yeah, B, I was gonna say. Concourse A, or the terminal, yeah. all the way out to Concourse C. Well, that was simply because in order to make the subway turn, and we have those two trains, subway trains, 
in order to make that turn or create a separate train, it would have been just as much for the tunneling and the train as it would have been for the entire concourse C. So financially, it just wasn't prudent. And it was, it was decided best way to go, buses. And while that may have been not so consumer friendly, still to this day, it amazes me the number of airports, either in Europe or uh, even in the US that are still busing passengers moving from. Yeah, and you couldn't go continue on, uh, which would, would have been south, uh, because you'd run into the rest of the airport buildings on the uh, other side of the east-west runway. So that wasn't an option either. Right, yeah. right. Um, Tremendous infrastructure and, and uh, low yield, unfortunately. Now, something people may not know is there actually was a tunnel between Concourse B and Concourse C. And it was a, a maintenance tunnel and it was a baggage tunnel. And uh, a guy used to work with, who came to work for us at Host, or uh, no, was Hudson, um, used to work for McDonald's, and he, you know, got stuck there one night late, and the buses had stopped running. He couldn't get off Concourse C, and someone told him, well, you take the maintenance tunnel, and you can walk over to B. And I walked down at about 50 feet one time, but I lost my nerve, because I thought, oh, I'm going to get in trouble being down here, because even though I have a badge that, you know, <laughs> allows me to be every almost everywhere, they'll probably get upset with me. But I did poke my way down there about about 100 yards, maybe, and chickened out. But yeah, it came out at the end of Concourse B, the, the end of faces where Concourse C was, and it came out a little maintenance door. And uh, yeah, there was a, there was actually there was a tunnel there, but it wasn't large enough, of course, to fit a, a train or anything like that. Oh, I know. That's my uh, yeah. That's where um, my Bostonians, my Florsheims, they all went to die. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so Back we'll, in my leader days, that's where um, that's actually where the bags came from. So there yeah. was it was a baggage connection tunnel yep. with a maintenance element to it. Yeah, uh, a conveyor that went the entire length. Yep. Un- just one single length. So if I recall correctly, it was one of the largest conveyor belts in the U.S. Uh, we still have the other one, which connects from the terminal all the way up to Concourse B. But yeah, uh, anytime that we have major package issues, we all had to go down in that tunnel and um, I grab the bags and start locking them out by hand. And throwing them on those carts, yeah. Now, speaking of Concourse B... Concourse B, even though it's not getting probably the love that it deserves, what with, you know, Delta's kind of shifting market focus, uh, Concourse B is still super nice. Like, if you go down to, like, Orlando, which I think built their airport either, they expanded it around the same time or a little later, that's a terrible airport, especially considering how many people come to that airport. It is not unusual for you to be sitting on the floor waiting for your plane in Orlando, whereas it seems like Concourse B and really even Concourse A have no trouble handling uh, a big plane load of people waiting to get on a plane. What was Orlando thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, number one, that's that's tremendously nice of you to point out, P.F. Um, I wholeheartedly agree, not just because I work here. Yeah. Um, I have had the good fortune of of traveling to a lot of airports around the world, particularly the domestic U.S. Um, CBG, our airport, holds its age quite well. Um, We have done a tremendous job, um, again, community-wise, just supporting it. Uh, Also community-wise by bringing interest inside. So that's my nod to the Cincinnati Museum Center for really working with us to create kind of like a museum atmosphere inside an airport, which is unheard of. And then there's that other element, which is it's our responsibility as, as caretakers for this tremendous asset to the community 
to make sure that it's holding its own and it and it does not look its age. And by all accounts, it doesn't. Um, we obviously host a tremendous amount of aviation uh, interested parties over the years. Um, they all come in resoundingly or just stunned by the amount of natural lights, um, the space, oh, yeah. especially oh, Concourse yeah. B, yep. uh, width of the hold rooms, and that it's just not jam-packed. That is largely intentional, and that's a tremendous amount of focus on all of the uh, airport board employees to make sure that your experience is not that of a traditional airport, especially in the domestic U.S. Airports have kind of lost their way. They're okay with jamming people in space and and expecting people to sit on floors or not have charging locations to charge their phones, etc. Oh, that's another thing. It's just unacceptable. Yeah, Yeah, A, um, I was going to say A for one that was built in 87, I think it was, um, and then retrofitted. It was retrofitted beautifully because like you said, you can, there's all, there's, thousands of places to charge your device there. And like I said, Orlando, you've got to walk around, maybe find a plug. There's no USB ports anywhere. And I'm like, you're bringing people from all over the world to come to these resorts. And the, the mayor gets on the thing when you're riding the tram over and it says, oh, welcome to Orlando. We're a big international city. Like, no, you're not. Your airport's horrible. <laughs> sort it out. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of if airports. If my friends listen from Orlando, it's yeah. all okay. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. I mean, we, it's a great destination, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you need to fix it couple of things up there folks um yeah because i'm a i'm a big but you point out a, a really good good thing pf which yes. is it, it's almost that field of dreams build it and he will come so yeah to your point on the 2012 retrofit so concourse a used to be delta's facility we still had uh if some people forget we still had operations that of terminal one and terminal two so just a stark difference uh, frankly kind of a third world bus terminal station from for those that flew United or U.S. Airways or Continental. That was frankly depressing. The consumer pointed that out. Yeah. That, you know, just really felt like a second class citizen. While the Delta passengers enjoyed really kind of the more better accoutrements. Yeah. So that's when we decided, look, we, we have to make some significant changes. And of course, we were at our lowest as far as passenger volume at that point, around that 2010, 2011 period. So 2011, we embarked on reclaiming Concourse A back from Delta, retrofitting the inside of it, really um, debranding it from all things Delta, uh, and creating this new space, new environment. We moved all of the other carriers from Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 into that singular space, brought all of our security just into the primary terminal. So now that um, combined TSA operations to make them more efficient. And then really started focusing on customer delivery. And ultimately that gained attention by one particular carrier. And this was our hope. And that was Frontier Airlines. We had to have a low cost carrier at CVG. All of our other competing airports around us had low cost carriers. That's where our consumers had driven to for years. Um, so we had to win that consumer back. That's that person that was taking their family or friends on that weekend trip for low dollar, um, as opposed to really the, the business person's airport that CBG had become known for. So Frontier brought six flights a week, not a day, six flights a week to Cincinnati in that 2014 time frame. It took us two years to convince uh, but they came down and really 
CVG was not the typical airport for Frontier at that time, nor was it definitely for Allegiant. Allegiant was way okay with boarding outside, in the rain, in the snow, uh, but very quickly because of Frontier's success and their rapid growth, they caught the attention of Allegiant, who also decided to fly here. We convinced them that our costs were equally as good, if not better, than the surrounding competing airports and far better accoutrements. And this was really, CBG was their first airport of its type that they chose to operate out of uh, and subsequently started really kind of changing their own business model. They started to fly to more airports like CBG than airports that would typically be considered like Lunkin. Yeah. Um, for both Frontier and Allegiant, we were one of, if not the fastest growing airport in both of their histories. It's uh, funny that you mentioned, uh, you reminded me two funny stories real quick about Concourse C and Terminal 1 when you say that people flying the airlines that serviced Terminal 1 and Terminal 2 back in the day in the 90s and 2000s had a much different experience. I remember working at the Hudson newsstand and this guy comes up and he goes, wow, this is a small airport, isn't it? And I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> and that's when air, when the employments were like in the millions and I guess they're actually back up close to what they were back then. But yeah, this is when it was like you walk over to Concourse B and it literally was shoulder to shoulder uh, during what we call the push uh, for folks not where at this the time when the planes are loading. Uh, yeah, so you're right. They got a very different perspective. And then the folks on Concourse C would always wander in and go, hey, can I step outside and have a smoke? And we'd be like, uh, no, you're in the middle of the airfield. <laughs> they're like, what? <laughs> so that's funny. So one thing I wanted to touch on, I guess Mindy said you guys wanted to discuss a little bit. And, be, and I thought actually this would be kind of a good topic because, of course, as we noted earlier in the conversation, kind of after September 11th, you know, things changed uh, a lot in the industry and there are changes we're living with to this day. And now with COVID, that seems to have happened as well. And so I guess what kind of changes are we going to see, do you think, coming out of this that are going to be permanent and maybe what things will kind of go away? PF and, and um, ironically, thanks for kind of pointing out 9-11. Um, that is uh, the same thing that I use quite frequently in my conversations, that this is 9-11 part two on a global stage. So for those that remember 9-11, that largely impacted just the U.S. security. And yes, there were quite a few countries that adopted similar practices, but not wholly across the board and definitely not around the globe. So we have now consistently a, uh, a product by the TSA. Under COVID circumstances, this is kind of the worst case, well, not kind of, it is the worst case scenario that the industry talked about for years, but never anticipated to actually happen. Um, it was always believed that perhaps it would be staved off and, and more of an epidemic, just a localized type scenario that could be dealt with. Um, closed out, and we would move on with life. Well, here we are. We're definitely in a pandemic state, um, not once, but now by all considerations, twice. The industry has not recovered. It's taking uh, just a continual drubbing. We have to, as an industry, figure out how to get back to business very similarly to what we did for 9-11 with one caveat, and that is make sure this time around that we are not compromising the experience of the consumer. Um, many of us will remember just the days after 9-11 and the months and years where it was very, very confusing of what to expect at the security checkpoint at any given moment. Um, that subsequently is, is kind of settled out. We pretty well know what, what you're going to expect or experience at our, at our checkpoints. 
um, and it's far better than what it used to be. Now, under this scenario, we're going to have to determine what are those threats. Uh, and again, this is not just a COVID-type situation. Now that we understand that a pandemic can occur, it's not a one and done. So it can occur again. Now that we know that this has happened, what are we going to do to prevent aviation's contribution to the spread? And it would not take much to say aviation uh, in an indirect, unintentional manner really kind of moved the virus rapidly around the globe as opposed to a um, way back in the 1918 during the first Spanish flu, how that just slowly morphed itself. So from that perspective, we are looking as an industry at what are the uniform, number one, kind of approach, not rules, just approach that airports and airlines should take. And when I say uniform, we cannot afford for the one-offs of you know, hey, look at us, uh, this is our brand, and this is what we've done dramatically different from anyone else, and this is a, a COVID silver bullet. That should not be the approach, and I will quickly tell you there are companies out there, not, not necessarily in aviation, there are definitely companies very similar to security companies that are profiteering in a similar manner to post-9-11, saying, hey, we've got the silver bullet. That's just not acceptable. That's not appropriate. And now is not the time to profiteer. It's very much about what the industry should align itself to. And that is a higher grade of cleaning. Um, not to unlike our friends in the hospital environment. That doesn't mean that it has to be a sterile, boring atmosphere. But it does mean that our traditional cleaning methods really need to be stepped up to hospital grade. Uh, which would include products that we use, making sure that they're um, safe for human approach and experience, all things from electric, electrostatic sprayers, which envelopes anything around it that, as, a, as it's being listed, to um, bipolar ionization, which is cleaning our handlers as the air is pumped back out into the public, to making sure that it's scrubbed. Uh, to a higher grade than HEPA filters, all the way into UV lighting, which has been used in, in medical practice for more than a decade. So there are no lack of opportunities. It's consistency that we really have to drive towards. And, uh, you know, folks thought after 2001 that, you know, that was it. People will never really fly the, the way they did again. And uh, I'd taken a break from CBG from 99 to 2002, I'd gone to work in advertising and I came back in 2002. And uh, in 2003, four, five, it was bit, the airport was busier than it ever had been. So, I mean, to your point, if, you know, if things are done properly, it, it can come back better, uh, better than ever, quite frankly. Right. We were, um, you know, especially the local community recognizes CBG and, and what we've been through. Best of times, worst, worst of times. Certainly, you know, at our highest, it's, it's hard to remember already, but at our highest, we had 22 million passengers come through our facilities. And a lot of that was related to the hub, naturally. At our low point, we were around the um, 4,000 mark a day. Uh, so, yeah, that w was putting us into the 4 million ranks um, on an annual basis. So now, uh, post-2010, you know, we really focused, we brought in that low-cost carrier activity, we just skyrocketed back to success. At the end of 2019, we were just shy of um, 9.2 million passengers. So 
probably doubled our activity in five years. That was, we're an underdog success story um, and have proven out quite, quite successful and really on recovery methods that the rest of the industry always looks to us on what are you doing? How are you doing it? And how quickly can you do it um, so that we can potentially model after it? And that's a, that's a both uh, a great position to be in and somewhat of a burden um, to be that treasured in the industry that, that others admire you and want to follow you that quickly. So the, the good news for us naturally is we can't forget that we have DHL and Amazon. Oh yeah. Um, two major cargo companies if there's been one bright light to COVID, it is all things e-commerce. So our cargo carriers are just having really what amounts to Christmas every day as far as volume. That has done exceptionally well for stabilizing CV, really giving us the opportunity to, get, again, reinvent ourselves, come out of that underdog status and come out of a crisis even far better than what we were in the past. Well, terrific. Um, well, it sounds like things are hopefully will be, again, moving in the right direction uh, soon. Of course, it it is a great facility. And for folks who haven't, you know, flown out recently, when it is, you know, time for you to fly again, you know, you you, you could you could do worse than CVG, I guess, as they say. <laughs> um, it's still a great place. And um, yeah, uh, like I said, next time I fly, I'm certainly going to show up early again and probably uh, walk around again uh, and go down memory lane. But um, so we've reached the point in the uh, podcast where you get to choose a coupon code for, I don't know if you listen to previous episodes, but uh, the guest chooses the coupon code and then they can use that uh, on our website or in our two stores to take 20% off their entire order. So uh, Brian, what would you like the uh, coupon code to be for the next week until the next episode drops? ICBG. There you go. Perfect. That's what I thought. All right. Well, terrific. Appreciate you taking the time. A fascinating talk. I could talk about the airport all day. Uh, great memories. A great, great time in, in my life working there and everything. Had so much fun. And uh, maybe I'll see you out there sometime soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, PF. And, and thanks to the entire community for always supporting us and uh, flying out of CBG and, and back home. We very much appreciate it. Great. Well, thanks, Brian. Cheers. All right. Bye-bye. Leaving home out on the road I've been down before Well, I could have talked about the airport all day, and I was thinking as I was editing it today, uh, a lot of the stuff we didn't get to, so maybe we'll have Brian back. Now, if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast or someone you'd like to have us invite back to the podcast, drop us a line, podcast at cincyshirts.com, put podcast guest in the subject line, and then tell us who you'd like us to have on or have back and uh, why you'd like to have them on or have them back. We've had a couple people on twice. John Keyswetter, the Haunted Cincinnati guy, Ronnie Salerno, they've all been on twice. So be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area, but they still feel connected to the tri-state in some way. And if you haven't already, check out those Cincy Shirts podcast archives from baseball great Johnny Bench to actress Amy Yazbeck. Tons of great episodes back there. Today's show is produced by me with all from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. Find their music in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. 
Find vintage tees from great places like Philadelphia, Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have a lot of defunct sports teams, old radio stations, old malls, old restaurants, things like that. It's like Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is FLYCVG, all one word, all lowercase, all uppercase, mix and match, doesn't matter. You're going to use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or you can go into our physical, or as we say, brick and mortar stores in over the Rhine and Hyde Park and just tell your nearest sales associate you would like to use the promo code FLYCBG to take 20% off your order. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest NC Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye